came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 23rd of May 2019. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And today we're speaking with Dr Ashley Reiter, ARC Future Fellow and Senior Lecturer at the School of Science at the UNSW Canberra, Australia. And that's followed by Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who is a University Toxicology and Pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks? And he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and astrophysics. So first up, we're Skyping up to Canberra in Australia to speak with Ashley. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ashley Reiter, ARC Future Fellow and Senior Lecturer in the School of Science at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. She specialises in Type 1a supernova and other transient phenomena from stars, in particular their origin, evolution history and birth rates. And basically, Ashley, you research anything that erupts, explodes or merges and also make predictions about which of these sources may be seen with gravitational waves with LISA when it's launched. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Okay, so before we talk about your research into white dwarfs and type 1a supernova, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Ashley, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, sure. I am actually from Ottawa in Canada. That's where I grew up. So I, I, I sort of was always interested in space or planets from a young age grade one, grade two, things like that. But we'd never had a telescope or anything like that at home. And in Ottawa, there was, there was no planetarium to go and see. I had no way to kind of look at this a little bit deeper. That sort of was one of my interests on, on the sidelines as a child. And then I suppose I was in uh, middle school, so, so there it would have been grade seven or eight, something like this. And my parents had gotten me this uh, National Geographic hardcover textbook called Our Universe. It wasn't really a textbook, but it was one of these hardcover books that National Geographic would have sometimes about space. And I remember reading about that, essentially the concept that light had a speed and that if we're looking at a star very far away, say in the constellation Orion, the star Betelgeuse, for example, the light that we see now from the star actually left that star several hundred years ago. And that was just completely mind-blowing to me. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. So you're a Canuck and now in Australia. Could you tell us a little about your early school days and your early ambitions? And did those ambitions change? Yeah, actually they did. So while I was always sort of interested in astronomy and learning about the planets and things like that, I always thought I would actually pursue a career in art. <laughs> yep. um, I was quite interested in drawing, visual arts, and also music as well. I played a couple of instruments growing up. Yeah, so 
my sort of serious interest in science didn't happen until much later, until I was in high school, actually. Yeah. Very good. So after your successful school career, you completed your undergraduate degree in Toronto and then your master's in Nova Scotia and then your PhD in New Mexico, USA, which you finished off at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's a really interesting study trajectory. Can you tell us about the highlights of this journey? Yeah, sure. Basically, I was an undergraduate in the physics program at York University, uh, like you said, in Toronto. So a great opportunity that I had there as an undergrad was uh, working at the observatory because we had an observatory there. I basically worked, you know, two or three times a month giving tours to the public, various age groups, as well as taking real science data. So that gave me some real hands-on experience with using telescopes and, and doing some observing. Toward the end of my, well, maybe partway through my undergraduate degree, I, I thought, hmm, well, I, I actually do want to be an astronomer. And, and I, I realized, because I really had no clue when I started my undergraduate, that I needed to go to graduate school if I wanted to actually continue doing astronomy long term, at least, well, to be an academic. And so I applied for a few master's programs in Canada, because in Canada, it's back then, <laughs> it was standard to do uh, a master's degree before starting a PhD. Yep. So I, I applied to a few programs and ended up going to St. Mary's University in Halifax, which was great. I spent two years there, and I got to uh, go on my first observing run, actually, with my, with my supervisor. I went to the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope on Mauna Kea. Yep. And that was a wonderful experience, pretty exciting. My master's project was primarily observational. So looking at star-forming regions in one of the Orion molecular clouds. I decided for my PhD I'd like to do something a little bit more theoretical, involving more modeling. And I also wanted to go, you know, maybe to the U.S., out of Canada, for a change. <laughs> yep. And warmer weather as well. So yeah, so I actually had a friend at New Mexico State University. I applied to several places actually in the U.S. and also in Canada. Uh, my GRE scores weren't particularly great, so I wasn't overly optimistic about some of these applications. I was pretty excited about New Mexico State University because at the time I wanted to work on cosmological simulations and there was somebody there that was um, working on this. And interestingly, I also applied to ANU here in Canberra to do a PhD with Brian Schmidt. I had talked to him over email and said, oh, I'm really interested in your, in your research. If I were to apply and get in, would you be interested in, in having me as a student? And he was very positive and wrote back, yeah, just, you know, apply and, and then we'll, we'll go from there. However, in the end, I got into New Mexico State and it was going to be another several months until ANU would even assess the applications. Yep. And I didn't want to risk turning down the one university and then also not getting into ANU. So in the end, I, I let that go and I went to New Mexico State. Yeah, and that was also a really good time. I enjoy, I learned a lot there. Um, I actually, I didn't work on cosmological simulations. I, I became very interested in uh, binary star evolution and also gravitational wave sources in the galaxy. So at New Mexico State, I had a lot of experience with uh, international meetings, presenting my work in various places around the world. I also learned to downhill ski and to eat hot chilies. So those are a couple of my other achievements. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then my supervisor, he had spent uh, the last couple of years of his PhD at Harvard, pre-doctoral fellowship, and he encouraged me to apply to this because it's, it's a really great program where you get to, you know, you, you still get your PhD from your home institution, but you get to spend some time working at Harvard among many different astronomers, astrophysicists working on, on many different things. It's quite a unique experience when you come from a, a, a smaller type of department where you don't have very many faculty working on a variety of things. So yeah, I applied for that and I was successful. So that's why I spent the last year of my PhD actually finishing up my thesis working at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which was a great opportunity. Fantastic. What a great journey. So then a few years as a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics in Gaching just north of Munich in Bavaria. How did that come about and what research did you focus on there and how was the culture shock experience for you? 
Well, for the culture shock, actually, that was not really a problem. You know, the U.S. was also a little bit of a culture shock. So, so Germany was not, <laughs> you know, also a little different. The main culture shock there, well, if I have to say there was any, was the language. Basically not speaking the native language can make certain everyday tasks that we take for granted very challenging. For example, reading your lease agreement, things like this. So, so But the staff at MPA were great. There were staff there that helped me with some of these things to get started. I did take some German lessons while I was there. MPA and all is, is a great place to be. Many, many bright people. I was quite excited to be living in Munich. In terms of my research at the MPA, I basically expanded on my type 1A supernova research that I had started toward the end of my PhD studies. So basically looking at how different formation channels of interacting binary stars might explain some of the thermonuclear or type 1A supernovae that we see. So for example, certain types of white dwarf mergers, as well as other types of systems that are not mergers. So that's mostly what I focused on while I was at MPA, working in uh, yeah, Wolfgang Hillebrand's group there. Fantastic. And we will put on our propeller hats a bit later. And then five years ago, you moved to Australia, and after your previous journeys, I might be tempted to say, oh, that's no big deal, but I don't want to make any assumptions. How did this transition to Australia come about, and do you like your new friends up in the southern skies? Oh, definitely, yes. This was a move to another hemisphere, so I would say it's still, it's still a, step, uh, <laughs> a step up from what I had, where I had moved before. Essentially... My husband and I were both astrophysicists. Yep. Uh, we met in Germany, and we were coming toward the end of our contracts, and we were looking for jobs. And at this point, uh, we had already one child, and we had another one on the way. And so we were applying for various positions across the planet, basically, to try to f both find a job at the same place, at least in the same city. This two-party problem is, is a well known, uh, it's well known that it's quite a difficult one to solve. A colleague of mine at MPA told us about this job, advertised at ANU. They were looking for a SkyMap fellow. So it was a job that Brian Schmidt was advertising for. Yep. So my husband, Ivo Zeichensal, and I, we contacted Brian Schmidt and said, oh, okay, so we saw this job ad. Is there any way, you know, if we were to apply and we're successful, can we potentially work something out where you have, like, we have, like, a dual position? And Brian was very positive about this, and he said, yeah, look, I mean, he was very honest. He said, look, you need to apply and, and see how you rank. In the end, if, if we can offer you both the job, we will work something out. And I made it clear that I was going to be having a, a baby soon, and so I actually was not interested in working full-time, at least not right away. Yep. Yeah, so it ended up that my husband and I were both uh, ranked at the top of the shortlist. And so Brian said, okay, great, it's up to you guys, you know, Someone needs to be full-time for visa reasons, and you work out, you know, between you what you think works best for you and your family. And so, essentially what we did, we, we took the job, we said, great, and we moved over there. My husband being full-time working a, as a SkyMapper fellow for Brian Schmidt, and I was starting out on one day a week. Because my, yeah, our second child was, he wasn't quite three months old when we moved over here. And then I gradually went up to two and then three days a week, and Brian was extremely flexible through the whole thing. Yeah, and we were able to push the start date back uh, because of the baby's birth, so that was also <laughs> quite nice. Yeah, so I find that generally Australia has a very good work-life balance outlook, which has been very good for me and my family. Fantastic. It's great to hear that there are workplaces where their workplace flexibility policies work in favour of the employee rather than solely in place of the employer. That's really exactly. good. Yep. yep. Okay, so in Australia, first you're a Castro postdoc and now an ARC Future Fellow, as well as your position as a senior lecturer in the School of Science at UNSW Canberra. Can you develop a good balance between your research and your role as a lecturer? And... Do you recruit PhDs to work in your research team? How does that all work, Ashley? Yeah, good question. So since I started my future fellowship uh, here at UNSW Canberra, I mean, so these future fellowships, um, they're canonically 100% research roles. However, in practice, what 
often what future fellows will do is, is also teach a little bit to not overload themselves too much, because this is always helpful uh, in the case of a promotion and developing your, your profile as an academic. So currently, I do lecture half of one course per year um, while I'm a future fellow. At some point that will go up. I'll probably be lecturing one class, maybe it's sometimes two courses per year. But uh, it is, <laughs> yeah, it is a bit difficult to to balance this, particularly the first time. <laughs> so last year was my first time uh, co-teaching a course. And yeah, that was pretty full on. But fortunately, I'm teaching the same half course this year, starting in July. And since I've done it once and I've already made up the slides, you know, I, I, I sort of know what to improve and, and I do have to make some changes, but overall I'm confident that this time it will be a little less stressful and I'll have a little bit, hopefully, a little bit of time to do some research. Because during those three months last year when I was preparing these for the first time, I, I hardly had any time to actually research. Yep. And on top of this, I work part-time, so I, I only work four days a week uh, rather than five. So time is always a little bit short. For PhD students, uh, yes, great question. I am recruiting PhD students, and on my website through WordPress, under student projects, there are a couple of links there where students who are interested can learn a little bit more about this as well as email me. Um, basically how it works is students need to apply online through the University of New South Wales website, though it's a bit tricky because the main campus for UNSW is in Sydney, and I'm here in Canberra, so it's a little bit fiddly. You need to kind of know where to go. But essentially, it's an online application, and the students build their portfolio, and if they receive a scholarship, they can come here to work with an academic. So one way UNSW Canberra is a bit unique from ANU and uh, UNSW Kensington and other institutions is students cannot be self-funded, so they need to receive a scholarship yep. to come here, um, which means they need to have pretty good grades. So it is quite competitive, but yes, I'm I'm always looking for for graduate students, and I have various uh, research projects that I that would be well suited for higher degree research students. Fantastic! We'll put those links in the show notes, Ashley. Oh, great! Thanks. Now, let's put our propeller heads on. We love our audiences to come to grips with some heavy duty astrophysics. In your PhD, you first set yourself up with expertise in binary systems and white dwarfs. And I just had a look at your recent 2019 paper on the formation of neutron stars via accretion induced collapse in binaries. And here you make theoretical predictions about how some white dwarfs can collapse and form neutron stars. Can you give us an outline of what can happen in some of these binary systems that you're researching and what conditions determine whether you end up with a specific type of white dwarf that may end up as a type 1a supernova, a neutron star or something else? Go for it, Ashley. <laughs> okay, well, basically it's the type or the types of evolutionary interactions. So, for example exchanging mass between the stars, right? These interacting binaries, interacting essentially means two stars where one star will be dumping mass on the other one or vice versa. Yep. And there are different ways the stars can react when this happens. For example, you can have mass being dumped toward one star very, very quickly that it can't properly adjust to this new mass. So what happens is both stars end up engulfed in the envelope, essentially, of this mass-losing star. That's what we call a common envelope. Yep. And when this happens, we don't understand the physics of this very, very well at this point, but we do know the end result is that both of the stars, so the core of that star that lost its envelope and the other companion, end up closer together. So they end up on a smaller orbit. Yep. And when this happens, you can get further interactions happening from there. You can get another common envelope. Later, you can get what we call stable mass transfer, where one star fills its Roche lobe and sort of more gently transfers matter toward its companion, um, where there, there's no large amount of mass lost from the system. So essentially, whether a star ends up making a type 1a supernova, for example, so an exploding white dwarf, or an accretion-induced collapse, white dwarf to a neutron star, depends on you know these sequences of events when they happen, but most importantly, it depends on the composition and the mass of the white dwarf. So 
To give you an example of a typical formation channel that I found for these accretion-induced collapse systems, you basically have, have two stars that start out. At one point, one of them becomes very evolved. You know, it evolves into what we call an asymptotic giant branch star, so it becomes very, very, very large and, and, and quite red in color. It loses its mass. Its mass goes to the, the companion star, which is still kind of like a sun-like star, right? Um, it hasn't evolved much yet. That asymptotic giant star loses its envelope in a common envelope and leaves behind um, a white dwarf, okay? And this, this white dwarf is actually composed of oxygen and neon because um, it was quite heavy. So what determines whether a, a white dwarf ends up being more composed of oxygen and neon or carbon and oxygen depends on that star's core had. And the heaviest one, the heaviest white dwarfs will have uh, more oxygen and neon, and the, the sort of middle mass ones will have a lot of carbon, so carbon and oxygen. Then you have this oxygen-neon white dwarf in, this, in orbit with this normal star. Eventually, that normal star will run out of hydrogen fuel and turn on the red giant branch, um, becomes a red giant, and you get another common envelope happening. And as the system gets even closer together, this time the red giant doesn't quite leave behind a white dwarf, it leaves behind this core, this hot core of helium that still hasn't finished burning. So you have this helium-burning core, it's what we call a, a hydrogen-stripped helium-burning star, <laughs> which will eventually, if left to its own devices, it will, it will eventually run out of helium and turn into a white dwarf. But before that happens, in this particular case, that helium white dwarf now, it's so close to that oxygen white dwarf, that helium white dwarf will fill its, its Roche lobe and start to transfer mass over to the white dwarf, but this time fairly, fairly slowly. So there's no engulfment here, just the white dwarf's steadily accreting mass of this helium burning into carbon, increasing that mass of the white dwarf, of the oxygenium white dwarf. Yep. At some point, though, the central density of that white dwarf reaches a critical number, okay? This is what leads to the accretion-induced collapse. So in the case of an accretion-induced collapse system, you have these happening from oxygen-neon white dwarfs, whereas if, if you had, say, a carbon-rich white dwarf, which most white dwarfs in the, in the universe are made of carbon and oxygen, if the carbon-oxygen white dwarf reaches a critical density, or some people say the Chandrasekhar mass, but yep. it, it's actually really the central density of the white dwarf that matters, you can get a type 1a supernova explosion because of carbon burning. Carbon burning basically becomes, it happens very rapidly. Whereas when, when you have an oxygen neon white dwarf, you don't have this out of control burning happen because you don't have a lot of carbon there. You have oxygen, which has different uh, properties in the carbon. So instead what will happen in this um, accretion induced collapse scenario, when this oxygen neon white dwarf reaches this critical central density, what will happen is you get these electron captures, and so you essentially lose pressure. You lose, you know, degeneracy pressure. So I didn't mention this before. Maybe this is getting <laughs> a bit too propeller cappy, but um, essentially a white dwarf is held up by electron degeneracy pressure, and when you remove electrons, it loses pressure and starts to collapse in on itself. And so when this when this critical density happens, it's it's, it's I'm sort of glossing over a lot of the details here, but essentially, <laughs> essentially what happens is, is start collapsing that white dwarf into a neutron star, and that happens uh, more readily than you would get an explosion. Whereas if you had a white dwarf that was made of carbon and oxygen, you'd more likely have a thermonuclear explosion from the carbon burning. Wow. But in, yeah, in the case when you have oxygen neon, you get different reactions happening at different rates, and so you end up making a neutron star from this. And we call it AIC, accretion-induced collapse, because it is a collapse to a neutron star, but it's, it's induced from this accretion rather than, you know, the typical way a neutron star is formed, which is in a, a core collapse supernova. Fantastic. That's great. Now, also in that paper, you mentioned LISA, the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, and we've just seen there's lots of excitement happening with Virgo and with LIGO and yep. gravitational waves. Tell us a bit about LISA and your plans for working in the future there. Right, so LISA is a proposed space mission. It's led by the European Space Agency, also with input from NASA. Essentially, it will be the first space-based gravitational wave observatory. 
And people might say, well, we got these gravitational wave observatories on the Earth. Why do we need any in space? (laughs) It's pretty expensive. (laughs) So the reason why we're interested in having a gravitational wave observatory in space is because you can have a much larger scale instrument. So gravitational wave observatories like LIGO and the proposed LISA use uh, laser interferometry to measure gravitational waves. Now LIGO and Virgo, you know, they're, they're on the planet, and I believe LIGO's interferometer arms are about four kilometers long. Yep. LISA, it will basically be three spacecraft in an equatorial triangular configuration in orbit around the sun, trailing the Earth, okay? Now, the length of the arms, the lasers between spacecraft, is going to be much, much larger. They'll be, they're proposed now about uh, 2.5 million kilometer long arms. So it's with these very long arms that you're able to probe a very different region, um, gravitational wave frequencies, which means LISA will be sensitive to a range of astrophysical objects that LIGO and Virgo cannot see. So, for example, LISA will be able to detect double white dwarf binaries within our own Milky Way galaxy, as well as white dwarf neutron star mergers, which is something I'm very interested in. Also, LISA will be sensitive to supermassive black hole mergers, so distant merging galaxies. So it's a whole other different range of scientific questions we can answer, hopefully, with LISA, that we, we, we simply can't um, answer all of these things with LIGO and Virgo alone. Fantastic, exciting times. Do you think LISA will have directionality capability? Oh, it is an all-sky observatory. So, yeah, it, I don't know the latest now what, what the estimates are, and I think, you know, this depends a little bit on how, how the run goes. Assuming, yeah. you know, you have a, a solid year run, eventually the directionality should be quite okay. But with anything gravitational waves, you're not just looking at it directly at a photon and know exactly where it came from. Um, you are looking at the whole sky, and so it's a lot more complicated to sort of reconstruct and see. Um, similar with radio observations, it's, it's a, you need to really reconstruct and, and to figure out where these signals may have come from. So I believe it, it will be some information there about where these objects, say if you see a gravitational wave signal, roughly where it comes from. Possibly by then, so this the proposed launch date of LISA is 2034. Yep. Um, though when I was starting my PhD, it was 2015, um, yeah. but hopefully now we're on a good track. Now we've had the LISA Pathfinder mission, which was quite successful. Perhaps in the future, we'll have other complementary instruments that will be able to help to locate the direction of the sources. Yeah, hopefully James Webb will be up by then. Yeah, uh, <laughs> exactly. I definitely hope so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. LISA sounds <laughs> awesome. Now... The mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or equity, diversity, flexibility or our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach. The mic's all yours, Ashley. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, thinking about career paths, definitely one thing that helped me I mentioned this a little bit before, is having very flexible supervisors, people that I work with. For example, I think if it weren't for Brian Schmidt saying, oh, you know, we're flexible, you know, you can work one day a week and come back up to full time or not at your own pace, that was extremely helpful to me. And I probably would not still be in astronomy had I not been given that opportunity to um, take the time off I, I needed with my family. Because, you know, when, when you're, I have three kids now, uh, when your kids are really little, you want to try to spend time with them because you really don't get that time back. Whereas the science, you know, you, you, you definitely may miss out on, on certain things, on networking and things like that. But um, basically, you never get that time back with your, with your young children. Yeah, so essentially being given the opportunity to work, even though my needs didn't fit into the typical mold, right, of a, of a researcher or of an academic, where you normally would be available full-time, five days a week. So that's one of the things I really like about working in Australia is the work culture here is, is advanced in some ways, at least in academia, from what I've seen. And I've only been here five years. Um, but in my, in my limited experience, it's been, it's been very good. 
universities, some of them at least, try to only have meetings between the sort of core work hours between, you know, 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. because parents sometimes have to leave early to go pick up their children from school. Whereas certain places in the world, I know that they're just so behind in this respect. And if you don't fit into that typical mold of, you know, working 60 hours a week, and <laughs> it's questionable whether that's even more productive. Yeah, so I guess that would be my, my main takeaway. Thank you, Ashley. That sounds very encouraging. So is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? Like, what are you keeping your eye on? <laughs> Well, I'm keeping an eye on the LIGO and Virgo alerts. <laughs> so the so LIGO uh, and Virgo, they're, 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 they started their third uh, operations run from the beginning of April. And this run should run for several months, po- possibly up to a year, I think, um, where the instruments are, you know, they're, they're turned on and they're basically searching for gravitational wave uh, signals from things like double neutron star mergers, more commonly double black hole mergers, so, so far, there, there have been a number of these uh, double black holes detected. We're hoping to get a few more double neutron star mergers because, uh, and I, th- I believe it's expected that between 1 and 50 of these things may be detected uh, over the next year. The thing is, these are double neutron star mergers are, in a way, m- well, I don't want to say more exciting, but they offer us more information than double black hole mergers because with a double neutron star merger or say a neutron star black hole merger you will probably see an electromagnetic counterpart i shouldn't say you'll probably see it i say there's a chance to see it because yep. uh, it depends right like you were mentioning earlier it depends uh, sometimes you don't have a very good localization on the sky where this merger event came from and so it's hard to point your telescopes in the right direction also, it may depend on the orientation of the binary when it merged. It may or may not uh, beam a signal very strongly in our direction. But yeah, so so I'm 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 always sort of trying to stay on top of what's happening there with these gravitational wave events, particularly the ones that we may expect to see an electromagnetic counterpart. Fantastic! Very exciting times. I'm keeping my eye on one of your instruments from your home country. It's been very exciting to see Chime come online and yeah. find FRBs. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. FRBs, a field that's getting a lot of excitement these days. And so, yeah, exciting to see where that will go as well. Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ashley Writer. On behalf of our listeners, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thanks especially for your time. And we'll encourage all of our listeners to follow Ashley on Twitter. She does fabulous posts as Grow Chili Peps. That's spelt G-R-O-W-Z-C-H-I-L-E-P-E-P-S. Grows grows Chili Peps, but you need to get the spelling right. (laughs) Yeah. Now, for grad students listening who are interested in supernova and associated research into exotic binary star systems, birth rates, mass transfer, transients, and gravitational wave signatures, Ashley is strongly encouraging prospective PhD students with high academic standing to apply to study and research under her supervision at UNSW Canberra. And you can find all the details at tinyearl.com forward slash Ashley Astro. That's tinyearl.com forward slash Ashley Astro, and Ashley Astro. This is all lowercase, all one word. All right, thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ashley. Okay. Bye. Bye. So let's cross to Adelaide now and speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave for What's Up, Doc? Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. So, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the night sky for the next two weeks? What's up in the sky in the next two weeks? Well, we've got plenty of bright planetary action happening. If you're looking just after sunset in the early evening, Red Mars is still with us, desperately clinging on to the horizon. And it's going to be interesting over the next week or so. We'll see that. By the time this broadcast goes out, Mars will be forming a triangle with the stars of Gemini, or rather the stars Mu and 
Eta Geminorum. And then Mars uh, skims past them, uh, heading past the bright star Epsilon Gemini. And by the time uh, we're ready for our next podcast, it'll be heading towards the star Delta Gemini. So be coming quite close to some very bright stars and making some patterns with them. Then, um, moving our eyes from the west to the east, we'll see Jupiter is now um, rising above the horizon fairly shortly after twilight and won't be good observing until uh, in the mid-evening. But Jupiter is at opposition in June very shortly after our next podcast. So Jupiter will be in a beautiful position for telescopic observation. So at a reasonable time, so you don't have to wait up till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to get a nice view. For us in Australia, as we're heading into winter, the skies are becoming cooler but also uh, less turbulent. So we're going to have fantastic seeing for the opposition of Jupiter. For those of you in the northern hemisphere, of course, this is coming towards your summer. So you've got less nighttime viewing as your twilight gets uh, longer and longer. And also you've got, as the temperatures warm up, you've got more turbulence. So it's a little bit harder to get some decent views. Nonetheless, uh, Jupiter will be beautiful viewing over the next few weeks. So it's well worth popping out with even a small telescope and having a look. Even now, it's beautiful and bright, unlike Mars, where there is a huge difference between uh, opposition and non-opposition. Jupiter only swells a little bit, but still that's enough to give you a reasonable view. So the next month will be an excellent time for observing Jupiter and its moons. And we should also be coming up with some excellent Jupiter moon action with Io and the others moving closely across the face of Jupiter, sometimes trailing their shadows, sometimes not, and disappearing into eclipses as well. So even if you've got a pair of binoculars, you should be able to see at least the moons wink out as they go into eclipse or separate themselves from the bright blob that is Jupiter. Jupiter is now in a very interesting part of the sky. It's now deep within the uh, swathe of the Milky Way, not currently next to anything that's really spectacularly interesting, but it's still hunting around Jupiter in binoculars. There's lots of interesting things to see. As well, on the 29th of this month, shortly after this uh, podcast goes out, it's going to be the opposition of Ceres. Ceres is a dwarf planet. It's the largest of the asteroids in the asteroid belt and was uh, recently the site of the Dawn mission, which has now uh, come to an end. And Ceres is bright enough to see in binoculars. Unlike Vesta, which is a bit smaller and just misses out on being a dwarf planet, Vesta can be bright enough to see with the unaided eye if you're under dark sky conditions. Ceres never gets that bright, but it's at the moment it's easily visible in a pair of binoculars, let alone a small telescope. And it's not far from uh, both Jupiter and Antares. So over the next week, you're going to be able to see Ceres quite clearly as it moves amongst the stars below Antares. And in fact, Ceres has a number of good guide stars for star hopping. And I'll get it, uh, put out some charts in a little while. But Basically, if you uh, look at Antares and then look off to a bit north of Antares, there's a reasonably bright star. North again and a bit down, there's another bright star which forms part of a triangle. And just below that triangle, in between the northmost star of the triangle, is another bright star. In between that is Ceres itself. And you'll be able to see Ceres move over, over several nights as it moves between the two stars, Chai, Opikai, and Pi, Opikai. And of course, that's not where it finishes. We have um, Saturn uh, now coming in the evening skies. We do have to wait for the late evening for Saturn to rise high enough for good telescopic views. To see the rings in any detail, you will need a small telescope. In a pair of binoculars, it just looks like a, a, um, an oval rather than a disc like as Jupiter does. Even in a small telescope, you can easily see the, uh, the rings, which are always as light at any time. 
as you may be fortunate enough to see Titan, its largest moon, orbiting it. Sometimes Titan is a bit far out of the field of view of a decent telescope, so you won't always see Titan there. But Saturn and Titan will be a very nice pair to observe. That's the evening sky. But both Jupiter and Saturn are still visible in the morning sky. So if you're up before astronomical twilight, you'll be able to see both Ceres and Jupiter and Saturn. Saturn will be really a perfectly positioned for telescopic observation in the early morning, although this will be bitterly cold. And off to the east will be bright Venus. Now, Venus has been our companion for uh, many months now. It's now heading towards the horizon and becoming harder and harder to see. So on June the 2nd, the thin crescent moon will be very close to Venus. You'll have to wait until about 45 minutes to half an hour before sunrise to get a really good view of the pair together. You may wish to try and pick up the pair in uh, the daylight. However, the thin crescent moon will be very difficult to see to use as a signpost. Uh, and the pair are much closer to the sun, so it's a, it's a lot less safe than previously. Nonetheless, that will be a very beautiful thing to see in the morning. And again, during the early morning skies, you'll be able to see the moon move away from Saturn towards Venus on successive nights, becoming more and more of a crescent. Very good. So lots of great things to see, Ian. And lots of great things to see. So do you have a tangent for us for this episode? Yes, I do. As you know uh, from uh, my description, that the moon is now past full and is waning and the evening sky is going to be dark again. And if you remember our chat about the Peter Aquarids yep. in our past podcasts, I was sitting out there watching the Aquarids and the sky even in, in our suburban location was dark enough that it was relatively easy to see the, uh, the Milky Way. But thinking about now that the moon's going, the skies will become dark again. And this will be an excellent opportunity to test how dark your skies are. So you may or may not be aware of the globe at night. This is an international site which uh, is measuring uh, light pollution. And its next uh, dark sky campaign runs from May the 25th, just after this podcast goes out to June the 3rd, just before our, our next podcast gets recorded, while the moon is waning and the sky is dark. Now, if you go to their website, uh, if you type globe at night into your favourite internet search engine, it should take you to the globe at night website, and it has a series of charts which will allow you to measure how dark your sky is creates uh, sky charts specifically for the area you're in. In the old days, they just had a generalised star chart for the Southern Hemisphere and a generalised one for the Northern Hemisphere. But now they've got a, uh, a regional map generator, uh, which gives you a guide to determine how dark your sky is by counting the number of stars, what the conditions are, and then you can submit your observations and generate a global map of uh, sky conditions. Now, I'm looking at the map right now. We've got lots from the United States, of course, and quite a few over uh, Europe from uh, South America, and Australia and New Zealand are sadly there. So I can encourage uh, the listeners from the Southern Hemisphere, especially underrepresented regions like uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, Africa and, and South America, to have a go at measuring you know, the sky so we can have a better feel for um, light pollution. And as we go through time over the, the years, we'll be able to get a better feel for the spread of light pollution and hopefully have enough data to do something about it. There's a specific app you can download that will turn your uh, iPhone into a uh, dark sky meter, which will allow you to more precisely measure the darkness of the sky at your site. So there's lots of fun things you can do and you can maybe even make a, a night of it. With your kids, the weekend's coming up and the sky will be dark. Why not take the kids out, show them uh, Venus and Saturn and try measuring the darkness of the sky together. That sounds like a great thing to do. 
where I am here in northeast Victoria, we're under what's called a Bortle 2 sky, so we're pretty dark here. Yeah, and I'm under about a Bortle 4, which is a bit sad, but uh, a lot better than many other places. But you've mentioned Bortle 2, which is a very dark sky site. Where do you think you might find a Bortle 1 sky? Coonabarabroon. Uh, Coonabarabroon is one, and uh, interestingly, uh, around Coonabarabroon is one Australia's first dark sky reserve. Now, there's 40 dark sky reserves around the world, currently uh, where the skies are dark enough and far enough away from light sources that they try to preserve them so people can go out there and see the sky as it's meant to be seen. So Coonabarabroon, in Australia, we've got one at the moment, Coonabarabroon, and there may be a second, there's um, a proposal for the Swan Reach Regional Park along the Murray to be a uh, dark sky reserve. But it's another place with a portal of one sky, really dark, but it's only 60 to 90 minutes away from Adelaide. So it's uh, near the Murray River. It's got lots of bushwalking around, and it's very easy to get to for uh, a lot of people in Victoria and uh, South Australia as well as overseas visitors, this is a very accessible site. Uh, not quite as spectacular as around Coonabarabra, where you've got the, all of the mountains, but uh, certainly it's a, a very beautiful area. So hopefully the, uh, the, uh, the proposal will come through and we'll have our second dark sky uh, site in Australia where people can appreciate the skies as they're meant to be. That'd be great. Very good. Well, thank you very much. And Astroblog Musgrave, get out there and there's lots of things to see over the next two weeks and a great citizen science project, another one to get involved in. Certainly. And even if the skies aren't perfectly clear, uh, sometimes getting out can be fantastic. For example, last night uh, the sky was uh, covered in cloud um, but I, when I went out to have a look, the moon was very close to Jupiter and the pair were, were surrounded by a 22-degree halo arc, uh, making it a very beautiful sight. So even when you've got cloud about, you can still see fantastic things in the sky. And so uh, don't, don't let a little cloud um, uh, put you off. Uh, go out and have a look and see some of the things that are really fantastic out there. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ian, and we'll see you again in two weeks' time. Looking forward to it, Brendan. Looking forward to it. Catch you later. Catch you, mate. Bye. And here is the Astrophys News. First up from NASA.gov. NASA's Fermi satellite clocks Cannonball Pulsar speeding through space. Astronomers found a pulsar hurtling through space at nearly two and a half million miles an hour. So fast, it could travel the distance between Earth and the Moon in just six minutes. The discovery was made using NASA's Fermi Gamma Ray Space Telescope and the National Science Foundation's Carl G. Jansky Very Large Array, the VLA. Pulsars are super dense, rapidly spinning neutron stars left behind when a massive star explodes, this one, dubbed PSRJ 0002 or just J002 for short, sports a radio-emitting tail pointing directly towards the expanding debris of a recent supernova explosion. Thanks to its narrow dart-like tail and a fortuitous viewing angle, we can trace this pulsar straight back to its birthplace, said Frank Snitzel, a scientist at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the NRAO, in Socomo, New Mexico. Further study of this object will help us better understand how these explosions are able to kick neutron stars to such high speed. And from Nature Letters. Published 20th of May. A massive white dwarf merger product before final collapse. Doctors Vasily Gavaramadzi and Gotz Gravner report observations of a hot star with a spectrum dominated by emission lines, 
which is located at the centre of a circular mid-infrared nebula. The widths of the emission lines imply that wind material leaves a star with an outflow velocity of 16,000 kilometres per second, that's almost 6 million kilometres an hour, and that rapid stellar rotation and a strong magnetic field aid the wind acceleration. Given that hydrogen and helium are probably absent from the star and nebula, we conclude that both objects formed recently from the merger of two massive white dwarfs. Our stellar atmosphere and wind models indicate a stellar surface temperature of about 200,000 Kelvin and a luminosity of about 10 raised to the power of 4.6 solar luminosities. The properties of the star and nebula agree with models of the post-merger evolution of Super Chandrasankar mass white dwarfs, which predict a bright optical and high-energy transient upon collapse of a star within the next few thousand years. That's in the next 10 minutes in astronomical scales. Our observations indicate that Super Chandrasankar mass white dwarf mergers can avoid thermonuclear explosion as type 1a supernova and provide evidence of a generation of magnetic fields in stellar mergers. Next, a reminder that the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, is appealing to members of the public interested in astronomy to climb aboard on one of the biggest scientific projects of the next 10 years, AstroQuest. Volunteers are needed to study images of far-off galaxies and figure out which light is coming from which galaxy as part of a citizen science project. So just Google AstroQuest. To finish up, our next episode is from early career researcher Tommy Marshman, who used this podcast to find his astrophysics supervisor for his Castro Pulsar research for his master's degree. So stay tuned into Astrophys. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio Wave.